You're with Clement Maniatella. 702. So, I read a novel in December uh, during my holiday, which was so wonderful and engaging. Um, you know, for some reason, the books that I read last year have had such a significant impact on my life. <laughs> I don't know why, but I think probably three of the books I read uh, last year did have this kind of impact, and this was one of them. Um, it was a leisure read for me. The intention was never to find the author and bring him on the show. But as soon as I finished reading the book, I thought, I have to tell the listeners about it and plug you guys because it was just incredible. Uh, and you'll realize why. The title of the book is The Bitterness of Olives. And at the core, and this is how I understood it, and, and I'll get the author to, to, to explain more, but at the core... It's about this delicate friendship. And this friendship is told through one of the longest ongoing conflicts, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it's, 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 a, it's a book about friends who are seemingly on opposing sides of the conflict. And, and throughout this book, we witness their a blossoming friendship in spite of those differences they have. But we also witness their fallout because of the, the differences that they have. So in this book, there's even an opportunity to rekindle the friendship. That opportunity presents itself. But then the question you ask yourself as you read the book is, is it even possible to do that, to rekindle that friendship, given what's happened? Is it too late? Will the friends take up this opportunity, as risky as it was, for both of them, for, for both of their families? And this is a theme that kept me engaged it was really a page tenor for me and i just loved how raw and how real the author was to the lived experiences of both israelis and and palestinians israelis who were steadfast in their loyalty to their country but also israelis who were rebellious you know and saw their country in the wrong but palestinians as well who were loyal to the quote-unquote defiance and defense but also Palestinians who were merely just existing. So it's, it's, it's a really beautiful book. I thought of it as also a bit of a historical fiction because woven in these stories of whether it's love or friendship or betrayal is also the history of this conflict. And it's told in such a relatable, in such a less intimidating way. And for me, the lesson was we don't have to believe in the same thing to know what's right and what is wrong. We always know deep down what is right and what is wrong. Nothing stops us from doing what we truly believe is right. So I hope you can get your hands on this book, The Bitterness of Olives by Andrew Brown, who's joining us now uh, via Zoom. Andrew, thank you so much for making time for us. I really appreciate it. And thank you for an incredible book that has really impacted me and I know it's impacted other people. Good morning. Good morning, Clement. Thank you for having me on the show. Lovely to be talking to you. Thank you. Uh, you're actually joining us in our Cape Town studios, uh, not via Zoom. Apologies for that. So I, w when I read the book, um, I thought this is so raw. This is so complex, but it's also so painful. It's so upsetting. It's so cathartic. It's healing. It's reassuring, but it was also inspiring. Overall, what would you say this book is about because there are so many themes there's love there's rebellion you know there's integrity i thought it's also a book about integrity as the author 
What message were you sending out through the bitterness of olives? I think, Clement, to some extent, you've absolutely encapsulated it when you say, is it possible for these two men to be friends? It, it is about individuals and their relationship and the extent to which the systems in which they live direct what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So, in fact, these two men, if you look at their history, they probably couldn't be more different in terms of perhaps their upbringing or where they come from. But there's far more that they have in common than separates them. And yet they are living in a society where that question is, is a friendship possible? Can the system tolerate a friendship? So for me as the writer, I was exploring the individuals. But I think at a broader level, probably the issue that distressed me most when writing this book is that the historical story takes place in Iraq where Jews and Arabs lived in a heterogeneous society in the 20s and 30s completely happily so the Minister of Finance was Jewish um, the Minister of Home Affairs was Christian the remainder of the cabinet under the king was Arab and they were able to enjoy life together, everyone could um, enjoy their own religious practices, their cultures, but they went to the same school, they all spoke Arabic, they were, you know, it was a heterogeneous society. In just 80 years, we've reached a point where the question is, is any friendship possible anymore? Is it possible for the two sides to in fact, find their common ground and not only their differences. And it's, yeah, it's just very distressing for me that it's taken just 80 years of nationalism, mm. Zionism, Arab nationalism, German nationalism, all the, the nationalisms that we've seen you know, directing our history in the last de few decades yeah. to reach a point where it feels almost hopeless and where people like me who suggest that a one-state Palestinian solution is the answer you know we are we're called naive and idealistic and foolish for for holding that kind of view yeah um it's just yeah it's it's a distressing reality and that i think is what the book is exploring for me yeah and 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 we'll talk about i'm interested in that that view that you hold because because i think in in one of the central characters you you see something similar to that and just to confirm you you did convert to judaism how long ago was it Oh, 32 years ago. So my children, ago. Are, yeah, yeah. my children are Jewish and yeah. I've, yeah, I've lived most of my adult life uh, uh, being Jewish. Great. We'll get into the themes in a moment, but I just want to find out from you, Andrew, when did you finish the book? Because, I mean, when I looked at the date of the publishing, I thought, no ways. There's no way that this man publishes a book and a couple of days later, boom, a new wave of war in the Middle East begins. There have been some very rude jokes from my friends about that, I have to say, Clement. <laughs> um, no, I, it's, a, it's quite interesting. It, it took me the longest of all my books to write. So it took me about five years to finally edit and reach the, the you know, being satisfied with the work. And about two years ago, my publisher said to me, you know, we better get cracking with this book because it may not be topical much longer. And then, unbelievably, it comes out in September and... October, we see the Hamas um, operation, the attack, and then what followed. In the book, I do talk about the fact that 
something is inevitable. Mm. Something's mm. going to break. Something's coming. I talk about a third intifada in the book, but obviously I had absolutely no no idea, no inkling of the extent of what was to come. But yeah, the timing was a bit alarming, frankly. You know, the book was out there, so I couldn't bring it back. Um, October happened, and then we were very nervous about, do we do interviews? Do we talk about the book? How do we launch the book, given what's happening? Mm. And we've we've had to navigate that space, and I think we've navigated it well. Um, certainly, uh, readers have come back generally very grateful for the book saying it's helped them try and navigate this themselves mm. and try and kind of understand a little about what's going on because it is incomprehensible really you look you watch the news and you just feel overwhelmed um, and and despondent yeah so i think ultimately the timing has been has been very interesting and very challenging but but also but also good for the book yeah and i mean i this was not recommended to me and normally, I normally buy books most of the time based on recommendations. Only once a year do I go to exclusive books and I just randomly select books that I, I'm like, okay, this is what I want to get into. And I was doing my usual uh, book shopping in December and I saw this and I was like, I need to get my hands on this. And, and since then, I've just been recommending it to, to everybody I talk to. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank so, you, Cleon. So I... Uh, how long did it take you to finish it? Because um, you've got how many novels now? Is this your fifth book? Yeah, this is the f this is I've got nine books out, um, and uh, two of those are nonfiction, and yeah. the remainder are fiction. Mm -hmm. And normally, it's taken about two two and a half years to complete a book. Mm -hmm. This book I'd actually finished as a manuscript um, about two years ago. But it just, it, because it's quite complex, because the story has got this historical thread to it, um, I kept going back to it. I wasn't happy with the way that the different stories met each other in the book. Um, and I changed this and I changed that. I was also worried about the tone. Um, I didn't want it to be, come across as a sort of diatribe, mm. uh, you know, p putting my positions forward. I wanted it to come across as a as a work of fiction that anybody could enjoy regardless of what your political views might be. Um, so it took quite a lot of tinkering and working and editing. So yeah, it's been a long process. It's been about five, five years, maybe even longer, six years. Yeah. So wh what I often notice, and I don't know if, if it's something you've noticed yourself, is that fiction writers... Um, I mean, you are storytellers, um, and normally you don't find a lot of fiction writers who write about, you know, things like a genocide or what what mm -hmm. we see unfold, for instance, there um, in Gaza. But you've you've written about the Rwandan Rwandan genocide in your book um, Inyenzi, a story of love and genocide. Um, you've written about this, the conflict in South South Sudan. Uh, why do you think that we don't have a lot of, you know? books, fiction about these tra tragedies? Because you can tell a story, I suppose, for as long as, you know, you do it with integrity. Do you think people are very worried yeah. about how it may appear uh, to the people, especially when the, 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 the conflict itself is still ongoing? It's an endless debate I have with other authors about whose stories can we tell. And and I think the answer is we can tell, because we are storytellers, we can tell anyone's story so long as we tell it with integrity. When it comes to conflict zones and ongoing conflict, it becomes even more sensitive, though, 
you know, I wasn't a victim of the Rwandan genocide. I, I'm mm. not Palestinian. I'm not living in Gaza. Um, can I tell those stories? Should I tell those stories? For me personally, the answer to both of those is yes. We need to tell these stories. As fiction writers, I think we are obligated not to only write rom-com and try and make a good living. I think we, as writers, we have a duty to tell the important stories, to get important messages across. But how do you do it when you're writing about something as brutal as the Rwanda genocide or mm. the occupation of Gaza. Mm. What's fascinating for me is that if you look at fiction writing, one of the calmest um, countries in the world is Sweden, and it produces uh, some more crime fiction than I think any other country in the world. So you know, maybe America does a bit more. But, I mean, Sweden produces a lot of violent fiction, and yet it is not a violent society. The Rwandan genocide produced books that were written about people's experiences. So mm. they are factual books written, but there is almost no fiction written out of the Rwandan genocide. Similarly, when I've done obviously a lot of research on Gaza and the writings of Gaza, again, people write about their personal experiences. They yeah. write non-fiction. Very little fiction coming out of conflict zones which is interesting for me, um, and I think it's to do with the sensitivity of, of writing yeah. about trauma. Um, so it's, it's a debate. It's absolutely a it's debate. It's so fascinating to observe because also, you know, conflict, you could argue, does generate a lot of creativity. That's why we end up with poems, right? Absolutely. Dance, poetry, yeah, dance, yeah, nonfiction, music. art, mm. graffiti, you know, wall art. All of that is generated by conflict. Mm. But not, it seems, not fiction, which yeah. is very interesting to me because fiction is such a free form. It allows you to say so much and do so much, and it also gives you access to so many readers. Mm. And yet we hold back from writing fiction about these, these issues. Yeah. I would like to know how much of your political views were expressed in the book, um, you, you, you've converted to Judaism over 30 years ago. You indicated that you hold a view of this one Palestinian state. Were you quite strategic and deliberate about just balancing your own views so that that's not so fully expressed in the book and you allow the characters to almost tell their own story in their own individualism? How, how did you go about that? I think absolutely. I think it's important that you don't impose a particular view on your characterization because then you're going to, I think you're going to lose the believability in your characters. Ultimately, the book is about ordinary people who want to live ordinary lives. Um, and it's, it's the system behind them that is the evil. So, you know, your average Israeli is not an evil persons, not a bad person, but the mm. system that is sitting behind them um, that they enable through perhaps inaction um, is, you know, perpetrating genocidal crimes. But the average person on the street is not a bad person if you met them. And they're just going about their ordinary lives. And there's certain parallels there, obviously, with South Africa. You, you know, your average white person in the 80s or the 70s wasn't necessarily a bad person, but through their inaction, through their privilege, 
they allowed a system that was one of the most you know worst human rights abuses uh, systemic human rights abuses that we've seen in the world um so i'm exploring i'm exploring that and i think to write a book of fiction in which you know hamas are the heroes and israelis are the the enemies um i'm not sure that anybody particularly wants to read such a book and i don't think it's a book that would have integrity uh, life isn't that simple and you can't polarize it out so what i've rather tried to do is focus on the characters themselves make them believable i think make them likable um certainly interesting characters and then plot how their lives are impacted on by the systems in which they live mm. by the way you can give us a call on 011-883-0702 if you've read the book or maybe you haven't read it you've got some questions for andrew brown you're welcome to also send us your whatsapps on 0727021702 the bitterness of olives is the title of the book uh, written by andrew brown i want us to get into the characters now um, Andrew, so I mean, you say you wanted the characters to be liked, etc. I mean, I have to say, I was moved with compassion when I followed the life of um, Avi Dahan, this detective, retired detective. But I equally saw as moved with compassion as I was following um, Khalid's uh, life as well there in in Gaza. Uh, tell me, just tell the listeners about their friendship. Um, why it was so important and why it was so delicate and why did you choose to tell the story of the Middle East through their friendship? I think, you know, if one takes Avi for, for example, so, so Avi is a detective in the Israeli police uh, murder, you know, violent crimes unit. So he has this belief that there's right and wrong in the world that perpetrators of violent crime need to be brought to book and he he has this ultimately naive view that in doing that he is outside of the security apparatus that is uh, keeping palestinians um you know, under occupation that he's somehow not part of that side of the israeli system and that he is doing good as a police ordinary policeman on the ground um and of course, you know, th that position is untenable and his own son challenges him and attacks him on it throughout. So the challenge with Avi is how do you create a character that ultimately is flawed because he's, he's got blind spots. He's got very big blind spots. Um, but how do you create that character who is still believable and likable for the reader and who, for whom you have compassion? Let's not say likable, for whom you have compassion. Mm. Um, and for, for Khalid, he has a similarly flawed character because he starts his life working in Israel as a forensic um, pathologist, as a forensic doctor in the mm. morgue. Mm. Um, and he's employed by the Israeli you know, government. He is, he is part of the Israeli apparatus. And when he goes to Gaza and he moves to Gaza, that is obviously something that he has to keep very, very secret and quiet because he would then be seen as a collaborator. Yeah. Um, he doesn't understand really why that is an issue. He understands it makes him vulnerable in Gaza, but he, in his own mind he defends his prior conduct. So he also has blind spots. So these two men who are 
flawed in their characters, um, but are trying to find form a friendship or reform a friendship that they had with these blind spots that they have, and ultimately it 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 is probably doomed. You know, the system is too powerful, their blind spots are too big, um, and their attempts at, at rekindling this friendship are ultimately probably only going to, to fall apart. But then there's also Adara, who's the historical character, mm. who for me is the glue that holds it together. Mm. She is, you know, the, the, the woman whose life we track historically from childhood in Iraq as a Jew living in Ramadi in Iraq through to the Zionist um, experiment in the, the town of Lida, where all the Palestinian population were expelled at gunpoint um, and Jewish refugees were then installed in that town. And from there she moves to Gaza because you know, she finds her loyalties completely mm. divided and, 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 she, and her, her loyalty is ultimately to an Arab man. A Palestinian man who she follows into Gaza, um, and in a way, she, she is the one who probably has the most integrity of all, yeah. and yet she has to live her life also in secret in Gaza. She can't openly practice her Jewish faith and culture, and she does it in secret in Gaza. So you've got these three figures who have all got some level of flaws, some level of blind spots, some level of secrets. And they're all trying to get on with an ordinary life. Um, and you then have this overbearing system that is putting pressure on, on them mm -hmm. from all sides. So, yeah, I've tried to, I've tried to keep it at a hum, human level and a, and a level of compassion rather than talking about the system mm. and you know, the politics of, of the Middle East. I, I love that. I love that. I, I, I loved Adara. Um, I loved how you were weaving her through... Uh, through the book and when I said to the listeners earlier this book is, is, is about love is about rebellion it's about integrity I think I had Adara in my mind in mind yes <laughs> I had yeah. Adara in mind we're going to get yeah. the latest in eyewitness news headlines it's 10.30 let's walk the talk this is Clemens Maniatello on 702 24 minutes before 11 o'clock we're in conversation with Andrew Brown about his latest book The Bitterness of Olives. I want to go straight to the lines now. Let's start with Jenny Cruz Williams, who's calling from Parkhurst. Hey, Jenny. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Great to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely brilliantly. And I've got to say, two of my favorite men on air at the same time is just a, a little bit of a treat for me. Oh, thank you, Jenny. It's a treat to have you call in. So, so, Clement, I just have to say, I know Andrew is modest to, you know, the nth degree, mm. but uh, one of his um, early novels, his second novel, Cold Sleep Lullaby, uh, which came out in 2005, it won the Sunday Times Book Award for Fiction. And what he did is there was, it started with a body floating down the river in Stellenbosch, and he managed to work into what was a crime novel, slavery, because... We haven't dealt with slavery, and it still affects us in ways that we can't imagine. And he's always been a very incredibly sensitive writer. And his last novel, The Heist Men, I don't know why everybody hasn't read it, because it's all about hijacking, and there are two characters there that you, you, you identify with both of them, both of them from where they come from, and you end up loving them, even the hijacker. Mm. 
Mm. And uh, it is it is an extraordinary read. But Andrew, I, I wanted to say you were talking about very little fiction, obviously under really difficult circumstances coming out of Palestine. But there was until fairly recently an initiative that took um, international writers doing a small festival actually in Palestine. And I've always been curious out of that whether there was some nascent fiction that was actually being written. Mm. Morning, Jenny. Yeah, I'm... I couldn't find, I found some fiction, but very little, and none that was picked up by international publishers, um, mm. and, and very little that was published widely. Um, and I, I find it, I find it perplexing, um, you know, as Clement was saying, conflict gives rise to creativity. Um, why one would only express your trauma through non-fiction and why you would not explore it through fiction uh, and the freedom that fiction gives you, I'm not sure. I think it's got to do with maybe sensitivities, maybe with trauma. Um, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. But there are the Swedes who I think have one, one murder a year or something, writing mm. the, gore, the goriest you know, murders that, and, and making mm. gory um, series on Netflix and others. Um, it's yeah. It's very interesting, and maybe it has to do with security. Maybe the more secure you feel, the more you feel you're entitled to write about violent violence and and trauma. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's endlessly interesting to me. Well, it's it's interesting to me as well, particularly with that. Uh, it, it got quite a lot of publicity, not a huge amount, and I think it might have coincided with Seven O Two's own radio station. Uh, which was situated in, I think it was Gaza, but anyway, somewhere in Palestine. And John Burke had to cross every single day uh, to get to the radio station because it was, it was, it was a talk radio station. Didn't last mm, long. Brilliant. But it brilliant. Was, it was very brave. Yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, beautiful. Jenny, thank you so much for calling us. I still need to come to your house <laughs> for coffee and get some books. <laughs> well, listen. I don't, I don't like people who just keep on promising. You know? <laughs> it's a very Cape Townian thing to do, Clement. Well, well, it's, it's in <laughs> Joburg promise now. and then not pitch up. It's very Cape Townian. It's in Joburg now. <laughs> Jenny, I will, I'll, I'll come through. Jenny Cruz Williams, thank you so much for calling us. Uh, Gulam, you are in Johannesburg. Good morning. Hi, good morning, uh, Clement. How are you? I'm all right, man. Go ahead. All right. I must say that Anthony Brown's book, uh, although I have not read it, but listening to both of you is very intriguing. I think it's brilliant. It's a reflection, although it's fictional, it's a reflection of the reality in the world, not just uh, Gaza or Palestine or Israel. Mm. Uh, I think it, it, it indicates quite clearly that the problem in the world is that the system, systems of government, um, even religion are used. Uh, as divisive tools, um, uh, and, and it destroys humanity. It destroys our humanity to the point where we forget who we really are. Uh, and, and it's very strange that in all the world, in most of the countries, they all believe in God, but they forget that God created all mankind. Mm. And yet, they turn on each other as if they hate each other. When we are God's creation, you know, mm. 
Um, I grew up in a little small town in, 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 in Kumanga, and I must tell you, we had Jewish friends. Uh, we had, uh, you know, and now I even have a Christian friend who comes from Palestine who moved out, his family moved out in the 50s to Jordan, and now all the brothers are all over the world working somewhere else. And I understand the pain that people go through. But I think, you know, the book, although fictional, does deal with some of mm. the realities that we live in this mm. world. And I think the problem is we are taught to believe in democracy. Democracy is being used as a tool. is also being used as a tool to divide us. Yeah, yeah. Gulam in Johannesburg, thanks for your contribution, man. Um, mm. I hope you'll go check out the book. Uh, it's by Andrew Brown, the, the Bitterness of Olives. Andrew, I want us to get into... Uh, the the character of Adara, yes. Oh, what a brave girl! And I say girl because mm. I want us to start mm. from the beginning when they're moving mm. from Iraq. Um, so brave that and and you know that that she's willing to be rebellious. She's willing to go. Actually, if it means I lose this family, so be it. I see the injustice. Um, I see what is wrong, and I'm not just going to ride along with it because. That's what the family believes. That you know. That 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 that's that, that's what the principles are in our society. Tell me about how you thought of this character and and how you gave her life because we follow her from when she's young up until when she's much older. Clement, she was for me the most fascinating character to write, and and a lot of research went into her because, frankly, I had no idea what life was like in Ramadi in Iraq in 1920. Um, I did a lot of research on uh, on on what what was happening at that time and how s- the civilization in Iraq had evolved to a point where it was this heterogeneous society. Um, I put her into that, and then I'm, I knew she was defiant, but I must say she surprised me. <laughs> oh no, she surprised me <laughs> <laughs> with just how defiant she turned out to be. Um, but yeah, she she's she's defiant because she's grown up as a as a young girl in a society where she she understands um, who she is. She understands how she fits into it. She's happily fitted into it, and from her teenage years, society tells her she's wrong. Mm. First of all, society in Iraq as Iraq changes tells her that she can't have a relationship with an Arab boy that that's wrong. When she gets, she's forcibly taken with her family out of Iraq, they go to a refugee camp in Iran and then end up in in the new state of Israel where she's put into an ex- pre-existing Palestinian village town, um, Lida, that has been evacuated of all Palestinians and she's put in with her family into a house that used to belong to someone else. Mm. And she's told there this is your new life. You can't have your old life. You have to speak Hebrew. You have to be loyal to the Zionist cause. Um, and, and that's not who she is. That's not how she's grown up. And so she's defiant not because I think she's a difficult person. She's defiant because she cannot understand why she's being told mm. the way she wants to live her life is no longer possible. And then she moves to Gaza tracking the occupants of the house that she's been put into and she tracks them into Gaza falls in love and again that love is not allowed it's it's impermissible mm. um, and she's told but you can't have this love 
Uh, she has a child and she's told, but you cannot have this child. Mm -hmm. So throughout her life, she's faced with societal rules and societal pressures that are telling her she can't be who she is. Mm -hmm. And, and she is defiant enough to say, well, this is who I am and I'm going mm -hmm. to live my life this way. So two things for me about Adara as I was reading, um, and one, I really was upset with you, Andrew, because I felt, <laughs> how dare you not give this woman something to cheer about? And because you do, and then take it away a little bit, and then you yeah. do. And then I thought, no, she deserves yeah. it. Um, so constantly yeah. I was thinking, okay, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Mm. And, and, and then and the listeners will find out what happens as they read about her. But secondly, how much of, because I'm trying to understand this character, how, how did she develop that rebellion? How did she mm. s start understanding and, and realizing that, no, 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 this is wrong. Why am I being told I cannot be with an Arab mm. because I'm Jew? Mm. Does mm. that have to do with that, I suppose, that, that indescribable bond that she had with that young boy when they were growing up in Iraq? Because I think that's almost the first yeah. time you start that's hearing of her. Yeah. And you're like, who? And the first time you hear of her is like, oh, this is someone who formed this bond with this young young boy. Mm. Do you think that's what really shaped her politics and her understanding of the world? Absolutely, I think so. There's, there's, you know, there's a section in the book early on where she describes her father um, and, and her father's view and what life was like in Ramadi. And she says, for my father, life in Ramadi was a seamless world of difference, a conglomeration of various cultures. Yes, but all essentially focused on simply establishing ground rules for a good life. Whether you praised Moses in Arabic or Hebrew, whether you went to shul or mosque, whether you prayed on Friday afternoon or Friday evening, these were incidental manifestations of your background. It was no more insignificant than whether you washed your clothes on a Sunday or a Monday or ate fish soup every day or only once a week. So that, you know, that's her life. That's what she understands life to be. And then she forms this emotional bond with her. And she's very young. She's a teenager and she, she forms this emotional bond with a, a classmate, an Arab classmate. And these two youngsters, they know it's wrong not because they're Arab and Jew. They know it's wrong because they're young and their parents would disapprove of them even holding hands. So they surreptitiously, as we all did, met behind, you know, in the bicycle shed behind school. You know, mm -hmm. that's what we've all done because of our parents who might disapprove of us having a girlfriend or a boyfriend. But f she doesn't realize that it's much more than that, that the disapproval is going to run much deeper than that once nationalism rears its head uh, and once the divide starts. And so, unfortunately for her, her relationship runs smack bang into the rise of Zionism, the rise of Arab nationalism in the Middle East. Uh, Germany is fomenting trouble at that point in, in 1936 as well. Um, and her relationship is then doomed at a, at a number of levels. And she cannot understand that and and i relate to that you know as a as a teenager who's now fallen in love for the first time and you're told by society but no this isn't allowed you're not allowed to have these feelings um this person is too different from you for you to fall in love with it's not allowed it's impermissible i mean those are those that's an extraordinary idea to be told that and she is completely perplexed and not accepting of that and that then becomes 
the way that she lives her life going forward. Constantly society saying, no, you're not allowed to do that. And her saying, well, you know, I don't understand it. And until it makes sense, I'm not going to follow it. Mm. Um, and of course, that gets her into all kinds of trouble, as it, as it did, you know, did for many of us. Um, I think that it, Adara, to some extent, comes out of my own personal life and experience as well, growing up in, in the 80s um, under apartheid being told that I must view the world in a particular way and rebelling against that and getting into a whole lot of trouble for it. So I think she's got a lot of me in her. Um, mm. uh, and uh, she was, she was a, a beautiful character for me to, to explore. Um, when I first wrote the, wrote the book, I actually wrote her as a Holocaust survivor. Mm. Um, and then I went back and changed that because... Partly, I think the Iraqi story was m closer to what I was trying to achieve, yeah. and also out of sensitivities for you know the, the history of of the Holocaust. But I think it works having her come from that Iraqi community, um, and then moving her through first Israel and then into Gaza. I think it's she carries the message of the book for me. Yeah, and you know, I, I you know I said earlier that. The lesson for me also there are many lessons that I take from from this book, but one of them is that you know we don't believe one thing I realize is we always know deep down what is right and what is wrong, and nothing Absolutely. stops us from doing Absolutely. what we truly believe is actually right, and that's exactly yeah. what she did from the time when she was young. I just want to read a little bit here because when we started off andrew we we said i said there's no way you didn't know. <laughs> what was going to come <laughs> because you published the book and then boom, October mm. 7th happens and then the retaliation happens. So on page four of the book, um, you, you go, the ceasefire had collapsed. It had been an empty promise of peace anyway, one that was always going to come undone. There was almost a bottom to the outcome, like a boxer punched drunk and slumped against the robes while his opponent seeks a rest from the sheer repetitiveness of his own assault. The victor had lost his appetite for victory, and the loser had refused to drop. Although the identities of the victor and the loser were a question of perspective or political will, with little credit for the facts, did the death toll determine success, or the number of lethal, lethal devices held across the white sky in a day, no land, had changed hands, no borders had been moved. As I was reading that, and I thought this has been the story of the Middle East. Because how yeah. many times have we heard of, I mean, even now, there's, there's, there, there are countries that are also trying to put pressure on Israel to cease fire. Uh, but this is not the first time. Throughout the many decades of this conflict, there's times yeah. when the ceasefire would have collapsed. There's times when... Um, you know, they would allow for the so-called humanitarian aid and they, they stop uh, bombing each other. Um, and then, you know, there's a way, I just couldn't find that part where you explain how people would even celebrate when there's a pause um, in, 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 in the exchange of gunfire. Uh, but that actually allowed for people to go and get ready to come and kill some more. So it's like mm -hmm. bittersweet, a bittersweet moment of sorts. Mm. I, it's been extraordinary for me to to watch you know what has been happening over the decades uh, in Palestine, because the moment things settle down, 
someone does something and and more often than not it's the israeli defense force will do something often at the dome of the rock but otherwise in the west bank or some something will happen and it's a spark that catches immediately and flares up immediately and it's what as i wrote in the book it's almost as though conflict is the norm and moments of peace and quiet feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's abnormal um and to a sense that in a sense that comes from occupation that you know the current situation in palestine is completely abnormal and unsustainable and i'm very distressed that politically people don't seem to see that you know the, there's a call for a few days ceasefire a few days ceasefire is not the answer um nobody seems to be talking about where is this going what is the solution how do we return this part of the world to normality and to something that is morally acceptable um we seem to have accepted a state of war it's a little bit like ukraine and russia i suppose we've sort of mm, come to accept mm. that this is now uh you know some of the commentators refer to a never ending war between russia and ukraine and we we it's a bit like we're punch drunk as the as the readers of the news as the watchers of the news we reach a point where that becomes the new normal um and we don't expect anything different yeah there there's something you 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 write here about i suppose the, the media let me read a few lines of it because i'm interested in what was the thought process behind it um and this is on page 5 you say in the end the israelis claimed a hamas tunnel under the wall had been used to launch an attack on a peaceful kibbutz a young girl in tears was shown on national television and fox news while medics treated a shrapnel wound on her leg she had been playing on her swing when the device had detonated nearby hamas accused the israelis of using high caliber machine gun to tear an innocent farmer to pieces while he tried to scrounge some tomatoes from his uh, cratered fields the cell phone footage on al jazeera was shocking but they were the only network to show it were you deliberate about choosing even the media houses to tell absolutely because <laughs> you talk about the girl who, who they're treating her wound that's yeah. on fox news and then here's a farmer who's been teared to pieces and that video yeah. footage is only shown by al jazeera yeah i i i'm horrified by the way the western media um are reporting on on this issue and have historically reported on it mm. um it's it just feels so skewed and and even you know what would normally be viewed as middle of the road um media houses international media houses um when it comes to this issue still for me seem unable to report in a way that is balanced and um and investigative it, there's a sort of acceptance of the propaganda that comes um I'm just yeah so I I find it very hard to to find the right place to get the news on what is happening and uh and you can you can see my preference for Al Jazeera in the <laughs> in the book um because I just think they are on the ground there and are reporting more with greater integrity and uh on the issue which doesn't mean that mm. everything that you're going to see is is credible of course you know they there is propaganda on both sides and there always will be in a conflict situation yeah um but i'm just yeah i'm just deeply troubled by the way the western media presented 
you know the fact that you know america could say our icj application was disgusting mm. um and that that could be pursued on you know credible news networks i, I find that astonishing or the fact that america could veto the vote on the ceasefire mm. and that that wasn't screaming headlines on all news networks to say but this is you know we've lost our moral compass this is mm. absolutely unbelievable um yeah i'm i'm just very distressed by the way the, the media yeah. it. but i think also to some extent one becomes almost inured to it one becomes almost punch drunk i mean do we do we really want to watch any more news footage on what's happening in russia and ukraine mm. you know mm. we've had months of it and i think you know, it, is it even newsworthy anymore? And that's the worry, is that you reach a point where it's yep. the new normal and it's not yeah. newsworthy and something else happens. And, um, and we start talking about that. I remember that's what I said um, when this new wave of, of the war started. I said, my biggest fear is that we're going to move on again. Things are going to die yeah. down and we're going to forget yeah. until there's a new yeah. wave and, and yeah. a, a new death toll and then we're going to yeah. go, ooh, let's talk about it again. Andrew, I'm out yeah. of time. Thank you so much for making time for us. Um, thank you for this masterpiece, man. Thank you, Clement. Lovely to talk to you and thank you so much. All right. Andrew Brown, the author of The Bitterness of Olives.